Good morning. Chatty Cathy's this morning. <laughs> Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Oh, so um, for you who might not know, my name is Amy Miller, and I am married to Pastor Joe Miller. And this is Henry, and he you get to meet him in about a month, a little less than a month. Um, no. <laughs> then somebody else can hold him for a while. Um, so I don't know if you guys know this about Joe, but he plans out the sermon schedule months in advance, like six months, maybe nine months. Like he probably knows what we're going to be talking about next Lent already. What? Galatians. Galatians. Um, <laughs> And it's so cool the day that he does this, because he plans it out, and he brainstorms, and he says, oh, you'll never guess who I got to preach on this topic. Isn't that perfect? And he's so excited about it. And meanwhile, I can barely, like, plan what we're going to have for dinner on any given night. So I want to congratulate Joe for scheduling the Mother's Day sermon to be delivered by a really, really pregnant woman, and it's text that involves Jesus Um, interacting with not one but two women, which doesn't happen a whole lot. So props to Joe. (laughs) In addition to being a scheduling wizard, Joe is also one of the best teachers that I know. And um, one of the most useful Bible study methods that I learned from him came from when we first started Leading the Edge way back in Stone Chapel. And um, it involves just printing out the passage that you're going to be um, studying, just on a piece of paper, double-spaced, so there's lots of room to write, and you just mark it up. You just scribble all your questions. You circle things that you don't understand and words you don't know, and you underline stuff that seems important, or, you know, you write, um, I don't know, any kind of question. You think about culture and context, and then you feel really smart when you notice something, and you go, hmm. I wonder what that means in the Greek. So she gets it. (laughs) And so I did this for this passage. And once I was done, I started analyzing everything, like I was trying to impress my English teacher, reading the stack of commentaries that Joe brought home. Again, perk of being married to the pastor. Um, So at this point, I was finding out all the answers to all the questions that I had written down. And my curiosity door was unlocked, and I was on fire. And I wanted to share everything that I learned with you guys. But that would take three hours, and you have to get to brunch today. So I'm just, I picked out some juicy bits to share with you. And now that your curiosity door is unlocked, you're on your curiosity voyage, that will be a good place for you to, to start off. So if you have your Bible with you, take it out and follow along. We're starting at Mark 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be, wa- she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, 
if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus has been crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee by boat with his disciples. Last week, Joe talked about Jesus healing a man who was possessed by demons in what was likely a Gentile area. And here they, this week, they're landing back in Capernaum, which is a Jewish area. Crowds gather when they hear that Jesus is there, as per usual, and a synagogue leader found him and immediately asked for his help. I love that the word immediately is used a lot in the story, and it's important. So what do we know about this guy? Jairus. He's named in the story, so he's probably a person of some significance in the Jewish community, enough that you know his name actually made it in. Um, he's probably a person of means. And he's distinguished enough to be able to go right up to Jesus, to approach him like face to face. Jairus falls at his feet and begs Jesus to come and heal his dying daughter. The word that's used for um, point of death here doesn't just mean really, really sick. One commentary pointed out that this basically means the end of hospice care, like this is the very end. And Jesus goes with Jairus. So if you weren't here last week, we talked a little bit about Mark 5. Um, It's sometimes called the St. Jude chapter, because St. Jude is the patron saint of hopeless cases. But in this story, even though it's part of Mark 5, there's already a measure of hope right there in those first few lines, right in that first paragraph. Any parent who's ever been desperate about the fate of their child and has been promised help has hope, even if it's wildly unrealistic hope. It's still there. So this part is also what's called, I love this, what scholars call a Markham sandwich. It's in the book of Mark, and it's two stories that are smushed together, one within the other. And it's not just because it sounds delicious. It's not just because it kind of comes next to each other in the narrative. It's because the two stories 
build on each other. They, give, they lend strength to each other. So that bit with Jairus coming to Jesus was the bottom, half, bottom slice of bread on our Marcan sandwich. So here's the filling coming in. <clears throat> on the way to Jairus' house, we're introduced to a woman who's pretty much on the way opposite end of the social spectrum from Jairus. No name is given. Her body has been stricken by hemorrhages for 12 years. She's destitute from giving all her money to doctors for healing, but to no avail. Not because the doctors are all crooks, but probably just because they don't have the means to heal this disease. The theme from last week, uncleanliness, uncleanness, um, carries over into this week. It's widely assumed that her issue of blood, her hemorrhage, is a menstrual complication which for a Jewish woman means that she's been ceremonially unclean for 12 years. In this state, she's not allowed to go to the synagogue. She's not allowed to interact with her faith community or touch anybody. Nobody can touch her without becoming unclean. Her condition, her bodily condition, isn't contagious, but her uncleanness is. It would require ritual purification if anybody touched her before they could rejoin their regular routine. So whereas Jairus is comparable to like a church elder or somebody, a lay leader who's in charge of like the the synagogue building, one commentary said that this woman might have been considered walking pollution. So her desperation is clear. She's heard about Jesus' healing powers And she's planning to go in stealth mode. She doesn't want to bother anybody. She doesn't want to call attention to herself. But she's so desperate. Nothing else has worked. This might be her very last chance. So she reaches out and touches just the edge of Jesus' garment. And she's immediately healed. And there's not a whole lot of medical procedures that we have nowadays that sort of have that whoosh healing, like, ah, I feel immediately better. It makes me think about, like, when you're outside in Baltimore and it's 100 degrees in July and you're going, ugh, and then you walk into an air-conditioned building and you go, ah. Or, like, you're freezing, freezing cold from being outside and you run warm water over your hands and it's immediate relief. That's what I imagine. She's immediately healed and she can feel it all through her body. Jesus is still surrounded by a jostling crowd. In my mind, it's like when you go to the state fair and you're on the midway and there's just a crush of people around you. You can't help but touch people that you don't know. And yet he's aware that power has gone out from him. And he wants to find whoever this has gone to. Questions from scholars sort of surround this. And it's mostly agreed upon that Jesus, here in his human form, fully human, He doesn't wield the full omniscience of God the Father, the full all-knowing everythingness, um, who's in fully control of his healing power. So Jesus wants to know, face-to-face, who touched me? Not who bumped into me, who touched me? Disciples, excuse me, the disciples crack me up here. They're like, what do you mean, who touched me? Look around, Jesus, everybody's touching you. But this woman knows exactly who he means, and she falls down at his feet, just like Jairus fell down at his feet in fear and trembling, and she tells him everything. She tells him her whole story. She's in fear and trembling. Does she think that she's going to be punished for being there, for spreading her uncleanness? Jesus says to her, 
dare you? Don't you know I'm very busy and important? I've got places to be right now. No. He doesn't scold or punish or rebuke. Jesus calls her daughter, and he tells her that her faith has made her well, with the clear meaning that her condition is gone for good. You see, it was not enough to receive God's power and just melt back into the faceless crowd. Jesus could have kept going. He's got another mission, you know, that he's already headed toward. But he's all the time inviting us to know him and letting us feel safe when we are known by him. This is the beauty and necessity of a relationship with Christ. And the woman also could have kept going because he clearly doesn't know who the person is. She could have just got to go. She seems to have anonymity. She got what she came for, but she's just been healed effortlessly from a long-term affliction. She's filled with gratitude, and she's compelled to stay. She came because she had heard stories of Jesus' healing. Perhaps she stayed because she also heard stories of his patience and love and mercy, qualities of a king that are worth following. I feel like those essential bits of the story too often are left out. They're missing today when we hear about people who call themselves Christians, who are behaving badly in the news, people proclaiming other people unworthy of rights, like they're walking pollution, justifying hate with misplaced Bible quotes, and declaring who God doesn't love. How amazing would it be if we lived our lives of faith amplified to the point where people could hear over that noise and dare to believe the good news truth that God is love and that his kingdom is here for everyone right now. Not way back then, not sometime after you die, but right here and right now. So at this point, someone from Jairus' house arrives to say that his daughter has died and to let the teacher go about his business. There's no use taking up his time now. Before Jairus can say or do anything, before desperate father mode unravels into freaking out father in mourning mode, Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. You just witnessed a miracle that came from having radical faith. Keep clinging to that little tiny shred of hope that we read about in the first paragraph. Until I researched for this, um, I didn't know that professional mourners were even a thing. So in the Jewish custom of this time, when somebody died, it was proper to hire at least two flute players and at least one wailing woman to come to the home of the person who died and really make a ruckus, to free the family and actual mourners up to feel like they were okay to let out their emotions, to fully mourn the way that they wanted to, rather than keeping everything bottled up inside. So when they finally arrived, oh, sorry, the wealthier the family, the more hired mourners there would have been. So it could have been a small affair, but since Jairus was probably more well-off, it was probably a commotion. And Jesus goes, why the fuss? The child's not dead, but sleeping. Sleep is used frequently as a metaphor for death in the Bible. But when Jesus uses it, it really makes it sound reversible. So he only allowed three disciples to go in and the girl's parents to accompany him. And Jesus goes into where she is. Another example of ritual impurity is contact with dead bodies. 
So Jesus touched a woman who was very unclean, or a woman touched him, and then he takes a dead girl's hand. And the Bible keeps the words in Aramaic that mean little girl, get up. And I love two things about this. Why keep the original language rather than translate it? That only happens a couple other times in the Bible. Maybe it's for the understanding of the audience, so it's not at the whim of whatever translator is um, telling the story. It's so you get exactly the words that you mean to have there. Maybe it's like when you tell a really, really good story and you want to make sure that whatever the, the really powerful line is or the really funny line is, you keep it and you use exactly the same words as the person did and you even maybe do the voices, the inflections, to keep it exactly the same. So whoever's retelling it is like, we're going to keep this because this part is really good. And the other thing about this, oh my gosh, I love this. I had imagined this part as being said, this Talitha Kum, this with like a booming quality, like a magician who's about to put back together the two halves of a woman that he just sawed in half. Talitha Kum, like it's some sort of abracadabra. But the way they used it here, they're common words used to wake a sleeping child. It's not alakazam. When we have another son, James, who's eight and a half years old, that Henry gets to you know, play with in a little while. <laughs> when I go into James's room on a school day morning, and it's 6.45, and I have to wake up because you know, it's time to get into our routine, you gotta get to school. When I go into his room, I don't say, James, get up, and expect, whoa, him to get up and start walking. I say, James, time to get up, babe, with the tenderness of a parent's love. So now, when I read those words, I can hear them in their everyday context. Talitha kum. A gentle wake up. I love that Mary used that song earlier, that old hymn, to express what the woman might have been feeling after Jesus healed her. Because over and over and over again, while I was planning this sermon, I was listening to a song called Morning Song. Not mourning like somebody died and I'm in mourning, but it's good morning. It's called Morning Song by Stephanie Gretzinger, and it is the sound of what I imagined this girl felt like when she's opening her eyes, going from darkness into light, seeing with brand new eyes, the colors of the world, and coming face to face with the person who saved her. So Jesus has shown us power over disease and uncleanness, and now even death itself. The girl is returned to full wellness, not just pale, non-deaf, leaning up against the pillows, kind of breathless and wan. She's walking around. She's fully, completely restored. She's probably really hungry. So Jesus reminds the family who are overcome with amazement at this to tend to her bodily needs by giving her something to eat. Man after my own heart. <laughs> so a few things stick with me. God's timing in this story is important. Jesus had been traveling by boat, sort of really unpredictable when he'd arrive at a place, where exactly he'd land. His landing in Capernaum in a moment of desperate need for the people in the story is both improbable and beautiful. And it reminds me how good God's timing is. 
even when you've prayed in desperation and nothing has changed, sometimes the answer to your most desperate prayers are simply, wait, or not yet, or things are still falling into place. Jesus told the woman that her faith made her well. And that sounds kind of incomplete. Mary quoted this earlier in Ephesians 2. Paul says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So the combination of this woman's desperate faith that touching Jesus' garment would heal her, plus God's free gift of grace made this miraculous healing possible. The people bumping against Jesus in the crowd didn't get spontaneous healing. They were like, hey, my splinter's gone. How'd that happen? This woman's faith gave her the ability to harness God's always-there power. An example to get your head around this that might be, you know, helpful would naturally be Thor. We're big fans of Marvel movies at our house, and Thor Ragnarok has been, like, on regular rotation since it's come out on um, video. Um, In this mythology, Thor is the god of thunder, and he wields a hammer that lets him summon lightning bolts, and it's an indispensable weapon, and he feels totally powerless without it. His father assures him that his power is ever-present. It's always there. The hammer is just a means of focusing that power of harnessing it. So our faith is a conduit. It's a channel through which we receive and experience God's grace. Grace is always there, even if one has no faith. But when we take a step in faith, even if the faith is the size of a mustard seed, we're able to experience the God who brings us out of the death of our sins into his abundant life. Finally, the woman was unclean for 12 years. She was in exile physically, and she was also exiled from her faith community because she wasn't allowed to go into synagogue. And it breaks my heart. I am very, very blessed to have literally dozens of people in my life, most of them present or past members of this church family. Some of them are in the room right now, that I can go to for prayer and guidance and support. A few nights ago, some of the ladies from New Hope held a baby shower for me and Henry. (laughs) And at the end, I sat in the middle of the room on a coffee table. (laughs) And they laid hands on me, and it probably really weirded out my mom and my sister. Um, They prayed for me, for my health, for our family, for Henry's birth, and for his future relationship with his brother James. And I felt so comforted and so loved. I've also sat many times in um, the midst of those same women, and I bawled my eyes out as they prayed for me in times of desperation, unable to cope on my own. In those instances, I was desperate for a problem to end, but I was safe in a community of believers, not at the end of my rope alone. So when you're at your most desperate, what do you do? This isn't a hypothetical question. I want you to go to your head 
and like think, what do you do? I know that you've been in that place before. Do you hold your head up and pretend like, oh, nothing's wrong. I can get through this on my own. I rely on me. Thank you very much. This is pride, my friends. And when I try that route, things just seem to crumble all the more. The alternative is you break down and you tell someone that you need help. Ideally, this is going to God for help, praying through everything and seeking his path out of your situation, out of your complication, out of your desperation. This can also look like leaning into others for prayer and support. God doesn't want us to be artificially strong and self-reliant. He wants us to know that we are broken and we can always go to him for healing and for mending. There is no pride or power left when we fall down at his feet. And that is good. I've also been honored to be the friend in situations like that, where the wails of somebody's heart overpower their ability to express themselves verbally. And I've listened, and I've embraced, and I've prayed and cried. And I call it an honor because in those situations we become a part of Jesus' healings. We become a part of the miracle themselves. By accepting the invitation to participate right then and right there in his kingdom, to know him and to be made known by him. So you might be listening and saying, oh, yeah, that's really special for you, but I don't have that. I promise that you do. Or you can, as it does require a measure of faith, a shred of hope. You can come to me, or Mary, or to any of the elders, to Joe. You can try out a house church to get to know folks better and have a more intimate experience than you would on a Sunday morning when it's a full room of people. New Hope is a gathering of believers who love and support each other, especially in hard times. And there is no need for fear or trembling here. Let us pray. (sighs) Heavenly Father, gracious healer, mighty king, we came here today because we were invited by something. The recommendation of a friend, the request of a family member, or a shred of radical hope. We thank you for meeting us where we are, even in our lowliest, most desperate places, and for freely giving us your grace to lift us up. Let us leave here with renewed confidence of your great mercy and relentless love. Amen.